All right. So much for 605. I think it's just going to be 615. Um, I'd like to start with uh, Isaiah 50. So I think at the end of, towards the end of the last class, talked about Jesus' attitude towards Scripture. As one who knew it inside and out, he could argue with like a single letter the Bible. He knew exactly what was going on, which really is not one sense to surprise us. He is the son of God, the revelation. But there's a sense in which Jesus, when he comes to earth, stands in our place. He is, um, he suffers in the way that we suffer. That's what Hebrew tells us. He's tempted and tried like we are. And I think like knowing my own heart, how fickle it is about just the resistance at times to come to God's word, right? There's like so many other things you'd rather do in the morning, like drink coffee and eat food, and then the kids wake up, and then like next thing you know, your day is going, and then there's just like, and then you like, do I really want to sit down, stop my day, and read scripture? Um, but then you think about Jesus, who by the age of 12 or something like that, just knew it so thoroughly. And so Isaiah 50 is one of the servant songs, servant songs, where like um, Isaiah keeps talking about my servant. Israel, so like, you know, the person who represents Israel, I guess you'd say par excellence, like the one who represents everything Israel is supposed to be. And uh, verse 4 says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backwards. So he obeys the call of his father to listen and to learn. And so, so should we. Let's open with prayer. Lord, we thank you that you have given us um, a Messiah, Lord. One who stand in our place and have all the right actions and right attitudes in ways that we have not. Lord, um, he is our representative. His victory is our victory, Lord. And we are grateful for that. But, Lord, as we are those who are now your children, who are now part of the body of Christ, Lord, you're conforming us into your image. Lord, giving us the desires that we ought to have, um, giving us the fruit in our lives that we're supposed to have. Lord, one of those is reception to your word. Lord, that morning by morning we would listen to what you have to say. And not harden our hearts and turn back, Lord. So I pray that that would be true for us, God. That we love and treasure and treasure your word as we treasure you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Alright, so just to recap from last week. So we're talking about this process of canonization, which means uh, the Bible was given to us, uh, well, us, we received it as a complete set of books. But that was not the case. As the... Um, through history, like, you know, first you had the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and you got the Bible, and then there's Joshua, and then there's Judges, and then there's Ruth, and, and they kind of get added on by layers, and so one of the things that we say was, well, how do they know, how do they know what Scripture was? How has the people of God recognized Scripture as that unique writing, that unique communication that's unlike any other? And so we looked at Scriptures, and I just want to remind you of what they were. 
um, from last week, look at scriptures to kind of show what the guiding principles were. So the first one was, was the book written by a prophet or an apostle of God? Did the person have the authority of God? Um, so we talked about Moses. It was clear that Moses had God's authority. He'd come out of the, the tabernacle, face shining like the sun. Um, There's no doubt that he had been speaking to God. Um, later on with prophets, God would confirm what the prophets had said. So the, a true prophet spoke from God. God's word would not fall to the ground. Exactly what the prophet said would happen, would happen. Then there uh, was a second principle that the writer was confirmed by the acts of God. So oftentimes God used miracles or signs and wonders to confirm the fact that, yes, indeed, God had spoken. And then another criteria was, did the messenger tell the truth about God? Because God said sometimes he would test his people. Someone could pull off a sign or a miracle or some wonder, but they were saying something completely contrary to what God had told them to do. And so in which case, God says, do not listen to them. And does it come with the power of God was the fourth one. So in other words, are, were people, was God's purpose for his word accomplished? Were people's hearts changed? And what God say would happen, happen. And so um, Paul would often say, my gospel is weak. It's a silly message to the world. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. God transforms lives with his word. And then last of all, and kind of like in correlation to that one, was accepted by the people of God. So God, God, as BJ was explaining on the second week, God is not just involved in the revelation side of it, giving his word, but he's on the other side in the reception of his word. The Holy Spirit comes to our hearts, breaks down resistance, breaks down rebellion, helps us understand things that are, as Paul put it, spiritually discerned. And so, as a whole, the people of God have accepted these books as the Bible, and then everything else is not. Some exceptions once in a while, but nothing that, but as a whole, God's people have had a consistent testimony to what are the words of God. So, it's kind of on that premise now that we move to the New Testament. Alright, so we're going to talk about the composition of the New Testament, kind of the order in which they're written. We're going to talk about the witness of the early church to the Gospels and to these epistles. We'll talk about different um, what we call the canon. We'll talk about the canon of Scripture, so the, you know what is in and what is out. And then, last of all, we're going to talk about some of the books that had some challenges posed against it. I'll explain what was happening there. So, so in the New Testament, we say um, Jesus lived and died, and probably around died around 32 or 33 A.D. Um, and then, for the most part, the next 10 years or so, it's the gospel message going forth by words. So it's the proclamation of the gospel. Um, and the first actual gospel itself, the first gospel to be written, wasn't written until about 50 A.D., and that's Matthew. Now there's some conversation, I don't know if you've, if you've read into this, of which one comes first, Mark or Matthew. Yeah. So, uh-huh. Four BC four. Well, they going back and checking the record, said that instead of year one. Oh. I guess I'm not really using Usher's. I guess I'm not really using Usher's dates. If he's four, so four BC would be zero AD in our minds. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's what 
Right. Oh, four, oh, I think he said 40. Oh, yeah, okay. Right, so yeah, I'm adding, oh yeah, so I'm adding about three years. Yes, three years on there, yeah. That's a good point. So adding about three years for the beginning for AD, okay. Yes, by Usher. <laughs> of whom I am apparently not, not well read. I, yeah, he's one of those people, like, yeah, he's one of those people at this point where people always refer to him. Like, it's like, yeah. You don't, and you don't actually spend a lot of time reading him. <laughs> you don't actually spend a lot of time reading him. People refer to him, old school. Yeah. And I do, the, okay, so that's going to get off to a side. Uh-huh. I did already. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So, yeah, and do you know, I keep, so circa, which means approximately around the year, approximately around, I use that kind of, so like around, so we're not, yeah, because, I mean, we can tell by events kind of where things landed, but like exact writing time period, like, so we say it's around 50 AD. Okay. So Matthew was written around 50 AD. Um, Luke was probably written around 58, and then corresponding, the book of Acts was written maybe a couple years later. So both Luke and Acts were written to Theophilus. Theophilus is, um, well, I don't know if the guy's name was actually Theophilus. That'd be kind of interesting. But his, the name means lover of God. And so um, whether or not that was like, this is his kind of title, like, oh, Theophilus, oh, lover of God, or there's actually a dude named Theophilus. I don't know. I don't know what common names were back then. Uh, but Luke wrote them kind of to, to this person. Um, 62 AD is the cutoff of where Acts 28 ends. So we can have an ending point pretty clear in sight there. All right. And then um, Mark was written around 67 to 68 AD, probably close or after Peter's death. Now, there is conversation about um, who wrote first, Mark or Matthew. And if you really want to, like, open up that can of worms, um, the reason being um, the similarities in the Greek. So if you study Greek, one of the things you realize is that word order is not a huge priority. So you can write things in, like, the same sentence in multiple ways, and it all makes sense in Greek. And so uh, Matthew and Mark, they have a lot of similarities in those, like, the, the laying out of the words. And they always say, well, oh, that's interesting. Why would two people use the same phrases, like, identically? They must, one of them must have been copying from the other, which may or may not be true. Um, but then there's disagreements between Matthew and Mark, and there's similarities between Mark and Luke. And so, they, so uh, but Luke's written later. So this is the part I'm trying to get at. So they introduce this other author, and they name him Q. So there's like a pre-gospel called Q that was written upon which they apparently copied. Okay, so completely speculative. It's, but, like, it amazes me, like, how much traction this, like, you, I read, like, people that even I respect. I'm like, Q, Q, are you kidding me? Are you talking about Q2? Oh, speaking of Q2, there's a Q1 and Q2. So Q1 is, uh, so one, one of the German uh, scholars, liberal scholars, that was trying to blow up the New Testament um, right before world, between the world wars, he said, well, there's Q1, Q1's the parable sayer, and there's Q2, the miracle person. So Q1 did all the parables, Q2 wrote in all the uh, parables and one did all the miracles. So they, they, he even sub-breaks Q into Q1 and Q2. I'm like, you don't have any evidence for this. We have no evidence of this. Okay. So I don't, yeah, I don't subscribe to this whole Q1, Q2 thing. Um, I see Matthew as being the very first one. Church tradition up until late 1800s had always said Matthew was written first. And I think there's a reason why they came down to us. 
Um, so those are the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then there's John, which kind of gets more into like the conversations that Jesus has. So much of, of John um, deals with some of the apologetics that John is interested in addressing. Well, when we talk about first, second, and third John later, Paul, Paul was, or <laughs> Paul, John was trying to combat some heresies that are getting in the church. And so he was like writing down and making sure churches received this revelation about Jesus Christ, the Word. Um, so since like the themes in John match the themes in first and second, third John, the first and second, third John are dealing with uh, issues that are um, kind of address the church later than earlier. They usually uh, date John sometimes between eighty-five and ninety. So when John is old but before he's exiled to Patmos. And then somewhere in between, so a little bit of a history note, that in 70 AD, the Jews had like totally run out of patience. Rome had totally run out of patience with Israel, and they came and sacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, which is kind of this huge, huge deal. So 70 AD, uh, General Titus, Titus, I think his name was, comes in and then like tears down the temple Brick by brick by brick, um, partly to get the gold that was in between the bricks. And so Jesus' uh, statement that the temple would be destroyed was, came to fulfillment. And so it was a catastrophic blow. So up to this point, if you were a Christian, okay, early on in the, in the church, at first, 3,000, and then another 2,000, you know, thousands of Jewish Christians, right? And then, like, this kind of weird thing starts happening. God starts saving Samaritans. Like, oh, that's interesting. Some Samaritans come in. And then God saves a couple of Gentiles. Oh, that's interesting. A couple of Gentiles come in. And then Paul goes on this missionary journey. And then, like, Gentile after Gentile after Gentile after Gentile starts getting saved. And then, you know, there's Gentiles being saved everywhere. And suddenly there's, like, you know, you as a Jew are now in the minority. Like, you thought the salvation was, you know, primarily for the Jews and then for the Greek. Well, the Jews are, like, this small group. And now the Gentiles are this huge group. And then Jerusalem comes and gets sacked. And then that was like kind of it for the Jerusalem church. They were scattered. And uh, James was killed. We'll talk about James. Okay. So that's, that's the dating of the Gospels here. So the temple's destroyed. John writes his last epistle, 85 through 90. Okay, so now for the epistle. So, these, so epistle means letters. So this is like, dear so-and-so, sincerely so-and-so. Except for what we do in English, they do backwards. They start with, Sincerely, Levi Gill, to so-and-so message, right? And so they start with who wrote it. That's the way they wrote their letters. And the earliest epistle um, would be James. Um, not Zebedee, not the, you know, Matthew, Mar- uh, I forgot the song for uh, the 12 disciples. No. Um, the James disciple died pretty early uh, by a Jewish um, persecution, he was stoned. Um, and then the James that you see in Acts, who is the brother of Christ, like that James becomes kind of like the, the pillar of the Jerusalem church. He's kind of like, um, he's the one you always hear about, he's always speaking. Um, and he was killed in 62 AD. And so, uh-huh? Oh, oh, I might have them backwards. He's killed by, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Herod Agrippa kills him by a sword, makes him up. This James, the writer, James, who's stoned. Yeah, bummer. I'd rather be my head cut off, actually. So, um, 
he died early, so he must have had to have written it early. People have noted strong similarities between James and Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, which now that we've studied the Sermon on the Mount, you should go look at James and go like, oh, oh. Yeah, so he was definitely took it to heart. It's kind of cool considering that James, Jesus' brother, who was like denying that Jesus was the Son of God and then eventually becomes a pastor. And then um, just dealing with non-Paul epistles real quick. So First and Second Peter... Um, are believed to have been written before Peter's execution by Nero. And we think that was around AD 68 when he was hung upside down on a cross and he died. And the, the tone of First Peter is like, get ready, persecution's coming. And then the, and then the address in Second Peter is like, and the false teachers are among you too. So, double bummer. Um, but since uh, the, the persecution, we're pretty sure the persecution that Peter is referring to in First Peter is the when Nero came to power and Rome burned and he attacked uh, the Christians. And um, so Nero, I think most people, historians agree, he's a little bit on the crazy side, right? Okay, so kind of, you know, most kings tend to be a little paranoid anyways. And he, he, he had a person, so Rome burned, they think he had something to do with it. He blamed on the Christians um, the Christians and the Jews were kind of seen as the same group. Rome didn't really distinguish them. Technically, when, when uh, Christianity started, it should have been illegal. It, was an, it wasn't a government-sanctioned religion, but they kind of saw them as um, one religion. They didn't see Jews and Christians as any different because they were talking about the same, you know, there's this Jewish guy, so you're, you're the same thing. But the first time they start stingling out Christians is around when Nero starts doing persecution and it, he was horrible. I mean, he's the one that was like lighting up Christians like torches in his palisade. And it actually, I, apparently from reports, it kind of turned the stomach of the Romans. They really didn't like what he was doing. And so there was like a replay, reprieve uh, after his kind of intense persecution. And then fast forward into like, the, uh, I think the late 80s and early 90s is the second great persecution by uh, Dominician. I have his name written somewhere in his notes where he comes in and starts doing systematic purging of Christianity. Because at this point, um, remember, they're supposed to have stomped out the Jews in 70 AD. And then there's this other sect running around called Christianity, and it started becoming clear that Christianity was not the Jews. Because when Rome showed up marching against the gates of Jerusalem, the Christians were like, we're gone. Not our fight. And a lot of Christians left at that point. Even like Christian Jews left at that point. And, and that's when Rome says, huh. Interesting. We'll take that to note. And so they started separating them from each other. So first and second Peter were probably written before Herod's um, persecution, so we date those in the early 60s, 60 to 64 AD. And then Jude. Jude has really strong similarities to Second Peter. We'll talk about that. And so they usually associate Jude to be written around the same time as Second Peter, so we'll date that around um, the 62, 64 AD as well. And then Hebrews. And then Hebrews. Okay. It's really hard to date a book when you don't know who wrote it. Like, okay, so who wrote this? Um, we'll get into conversation about who wrote it um, when we get down to authorship issues. Um, but Hebrews was written about the theme of um, persecution. That pers- it kind of seems like if you read Hebrews, persecution is already happening, and it sounds like Jews are leaving and going back to Judaism. Like, Christianity's too tough, and they're going back to um, um, 
Judaism. And so there's also the statement in Hebrews 6.6 6, that, you know, to leave Christianity is as if to crucify Christ again. Do you remember that really cryptic statement in Hebrews 6.6? 6? You want to actually probably read that. I'll read it. So Hebrews 6.4 says, For it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gifts and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, holding him up to contempt. And so that phrase, crucifying again the Son of God, seems to imply that these might have been people who were involved in Christ's first person. Crucifixion. So there's like this kind of nearness to the event. So that's that's kind of how I, yeah that's kind of how I see that phrase. And you don't have to. Um, and it does not reference the destruction of the temple, which the book of Hebrews. One of the things it does is shows like why Christ is better than the Old Testament way. Like the law was pointing to this, and the priests were pointing to this, and the sacrifices were pointing to this, and all these things Christ. He's proved himself better. He's a better priest, a better sacrifice, a better lawgiver. Better, 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 better. It would have been a great time to mention it. And, like, and his, the temple's gone. <laughs> it's kind of hard to go back to Judaism when your temple's gone and your city's sacked, right? So it seems like, so that kind of makes us think that persecution is here, but the temple's not gone yet. So that would help us date Hebrews somewhere between 64 and maybe 70 AD. So, <clears throat> so, those, so those are the non what they refer to as the Pauline epistles. Now, I like what they call these things now. So I'm going to say the quote-unquote Pauline epistles and the Johnine epistles. And I'm only saying this simply in case, like, if you read a commentary, you know, like, okay, I've heard this before. Okay, so basically, Pauline epistles, the epistles that Paul wrote, okay, the letters he wrote. So the earliest epistles are recognized as Galatians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, and 1st and 2nd Corinthians, probably in that order, um, these were all churches mentioned in Paul's first missionary journey. And so you have like Galatians. So you, you hear him, how he goes to Galatia, people get saved. And then he's like apparently written from some distance and saying, how have you already so quickly? Okay, so that's like an evidence of like near in time. How can you so quickly have turned away from the gospel by which you were saved? And many think that that is actually Paul's first epistle, especially since he spent so much time defending his apostolic authority in chapters 1 and 2. First and second Thessalonians, um, also people saved in the first missionary journey, and it talks about... Um, so, Thessal- Thessalonica, so Paul and Timothy and Silas are in Thessalonica, and they're only there for a couple weeks. A couple weeks. Paul gets a couple weeks with these people before they're like kicked out of town. And so they're really scared that this little fledgling church is not going to make it, and then they make it. And so there's this letter writing about his encouragement about that. And the second Thessalonians is about people sitting on their um, seats waiting for the you know, Christ to come. He says, well, get to work. There's work to be done. And then First and Second Corinthians um, early as well, First Missionary Journey. One of the, also one of the things that noticeable about First and Second Corinthians is there seems to be no reference to New Testament scripture at this point, and there's a lot of prophecy going on. So, um, irregardless of your position of whether or not prophecy ceased after the New Testament, you can at least say for certain that one of the ways that God was sustaining his church with his revelation concerning Christ was with prophecy. 
So until, the, until scripture got out there and got around to the churches, they're receiving re- revelations concerning Christ. And you can see that because in 1 Corinthians uh, 12, right before, it's like, there was a statement that was false. Jesus is accursed. You can't, the Holy Spirit would never say that. Okay, so obviously they're talking about Jesus in their prophecies. And then in Ephesians, um, Paul refers to the fact that this, there's this new revelation. We read this last week, but there's this new revelation given by the apostles and the prophets. So he doesn't just say it's the apostles that are giving this new revelation concerning Christ and concerning these mysteries about the Gentiles being included into the covenant of faith, but also these prophets. So there's this ongoing sense of prophecy early on that we see in this early church at Corinth. Okay, and then there's Romans. Romans is a little hard to date. Um, so he seems free, and he's making plans to go places, and then Paul gets arrested. <laughs> so then um, we think that Rome, Rome seems to be written before his arrest because he gets arrested and sent to Rome. And he's talking to these people like he didn't know them. Okay, so somewhere between the early epistles and the, what we refer to as the prison epistles, Rome's, Roman... Uh, the Epistle to Rome was written. And then Paul's in jail. So think about Acts, about those, the time that he was in jail after he showed up in Jerusalem and was taken away by the Roman guards. And he had freedom in Rome to write to churches. So they believe that's when Colossians, Ephesians, and Philippians were written because he's referring to his chains and to his captivity. So the... Part of the reasons that we can date Paul's book so easily and not, like, it's a little bit harder to date, like, Hebrews and Peter and James, incredibly hard, but harder, is, like, we have Acts telling us where Paul was when, right? And you can just reconstruct this narrative and this time frame pretty clearly. So, until this moment, right now, okay. So then, what happened in Acts, after Acts 28? Is the church planning Acts 29? That's how I know there's 28 chapters in Acts, because there's a church planning network called Acts 29, like what happened afterwards. So like Paul's in prison, he has freedom, uh, a certain amount of freedom, he's under house arrest, but people can come and go as they please. Then what? Okay. And so then what? So we, some people say he was killed, um, but I think most scholars now agree that he was probably acquitted. Because think about Philippians, how he talks about how, you know, to live as Christ, to die as gain. However, it seems more beneficial for your sake that I am freed. And so he has this expectation that he's going to get out. And, and then um, there's events that are referred to in these late epistles that we have no recollection of in Acts. So like these like kind of important key hinge events that happened. So like there's, they have to be some history after, um, after Acts 28. So um, in tradition, church tradition tells us that he got out. So... I say right here that we can infer, I think it's a good way to put it, we can infer that Paul was acquitted, shows up in Ephesus because he refers to this showdown with Hymenaeus and Alexander, um, who he has to kick out of the church at Ephesus. And then there's Crete. He does a missionary planting journey to Crete. And so um, that hasn't been spoken of yet. And so he goes to Crete and plants, does church planting and then probably went to Spain because that's what he said he wanted to do. And they say, and so the Jewish tradition said he made it to Spain, and when he's in Spain, Nero torched Rome. He comes back home, and things are hot. No pun intended. Okay, and things were hot, and he gets arrested. And then this is the arrest that he dies, where he, he's beheaded. And that, during that time, he writes his, what we refer to as like his swan songs, like his 
writes to his protégés, Timothy and Titus, saying, um, here, set things in order, I'm in jail, I'm in jail, and then by 2 Timothy he says, I'm being poured out as a drink offering, which is pretty um, vivid description, because a drink offering was when they took a, a um, mug full of wine and they did it with spices and they poured it onto the ground. You can just imagine like the imagery he's referring to here. Yikes. So that's in 2 Timothy. So then he was executed. Uh-huh. I was wondering, um, like, I'm just puzzled that, you know, the author, at least, like, like, influenced the writing of the series. Like, I mean, it sounds like the writing style was different. Like, like, we will get there. Um, yes. There is an argument for why Paul probably wrote or influenced Hebrews. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, he just had such a passion for, I mean, yeah, if you're going to go with his own salvation, you know, like, he will become so worried. Yeah. Influence for certain. Yeah. Uh, so then the Jonian epistles. Okay, so um, this is considering that the issues that John is addressing is dealing with false doctrines, and I'll just put, I'm just explaining this term because it's in commentaries, proto-Gnosticism, but it's like with a G, proto-Gnosticism. Okay, so Gnosticism was a heresy that was like rampant in the church second and third centuries AD. And but like the seabeds of what they were saying seem to be um addressed by John. And so they call it proto, like kind of before Gnosticism, but here's like the first kind of wave of it coming in. And one of the things that Gnostics were really big on was first of all special special knowledge. So Gnosticism means knowledge. So they they thought they had like this special communication with heavenly beings. And that, and, and one of the things that they were really, they were, at least the ones that we see in the New Testament were ascetics. Like they refused, like, to participate in certain foods, certain things, because they had, um, they, they did, they saw a dichotomy between your soul and your body. So things, your body was just like weighing down your poor, weary soul. And if only your soul could be free. And so one of the doctrines that they would talk about is how, if Jesus was this, this man sent from God, he, then he wasn't in the flesh. He was like some apparition, ghostly dude walking around on the earth. False doctrine, right? And so um, that's why John would say, you know, you can't say that Jesus didn't come in the flesh. Jesus came in the flesh. And he died in the flesh, and that's really important. Um, but this, this is stuff that is addressing the church in like the late like 70s, 80s, and 90s. And so since John seems to be addressing those issues, we date them to be around 95 and 100 A.D., um, or between 85 and 95, so somewhere in there. I can't nail it down perfectly. But then uh, John gets arrested, thrown onto Patmos, under the Di- Diomitian, that's his name, Diomitian uh, persecution, 95 to 100 A.D. Um, so that's probably when Revelation occurred. And then there is probably a chance that John made it off of Patmos for a couple of years and then died. So... Natural causes, yeah. 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 Couldn't, yeah. He refers to that. Remember at the end of John, he's having that talk with Peter. He's like, Peter, do you love me if you're my sheep? Peter, do you love me if you're my sheep? Peter, do you love me if you're my sheep? And Peter turns around and looks at John like, what about him? <laughs> and he's like, what does it matter to you what I do with John? I'm talking to you, Peter. And, and then, and so, and John, like, has a clarifying statement. 
Now, people thought that meant that I would never die, right? Okay, it's basically speaks of their person, like this apostle would never die, but he did. So, okay, so that's that's the dating. So, and then at that point, at the end of Revelation, um, it's kind of like it ends. The, 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 that's it. The, in one sense, if you think about it, so Christ comes, and we get all this writing about who Christ is, what his ministry represents, how it ties the Old Testament, just loads and loads and loads of doctrine tying this Old and New Covenant together through Christ. And then Revelation fast-forwards to the end of history, saying, okay, now here's the conclusion. So Matthew 28, as it were, says, okay, now go into the world. Okay, Acts shows them going to the world. The epistles show them going into the world. And Revelation looks on the other side and says, and now it's complete, and it's been done. And here's like what happens. So at that point, like it's almost like this full-orbed revelation concerning Christ. And so we're not expecting any more revelation concerning Christ until revelation happens, then God will tell us new stuff at that point. Um, but the church, immediately at that point, said, recognized themselves, they recognized no more scripture came our way. In, in much the same way that the Jews realized, after Malachi, that there was no more prophecy. Right? It's like it was immediately clear to them that God had stopped speaking through his prophets. I read some of those quotes. Same thing on the church side. They knew immediately that God had stopped speaking. Okay. Now, New Testament's witness to its own authority as scripture. Now, in some ways, I say, like, in some ways, I think the Old Testament is an easier problem because, like, the New Testament, like, Christ and the New Testament authors refer to the Old Testament as scripture, as scripture, as scripture, as scripture, as scripture, as scripture, and they use it as scripture. So, at some point, if you don't believe that the Old Testament is scripture, then you're pretty much at odds with Jesus and the writers of the New Testament. Okay, so I've never, yeah, so I've never, there's never been an issue to me. So, um, in 2 Timothy 3, turn there, 2 Timothy 3. Okay, so in, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, Paul's dealing with the persecution that enters the church through false teachers um, that, that people will collect for themselves, people to tickle their ears. Like, um, I was going to start picking on someone, but maybe I shouldn't. Um, the fact that false teachers can exist with the popularity that they exist with is not a sign so much of the false teachers as those who listen to them, that accept them. They're excited about their message. It says more about the congregation than it does the teacher. Um, and so Paul's saying, look, if you're going to follow after me in this, if you're going to proclaim these truths and these gospels just like this, then you need to expect suffering just as Christ was persecuted, just as I was persecuted. So I'll pick it up in verse 12, 312. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, all, all of us, yes, will be persecuted. While evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been equated with the sacred, sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed, breathed out by God. 
and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, complete, equipped for every good work. Okay, so when I was in Awanas, uh, memorizing little scriptures in my cute red uniform, like all scripture is, you know, breathe out by God. I knew that verse. But then like, but then it's so interesting if you just kind of just pick up just one more verse. So what is this thing that he's referring to as scripture? So he says, um, scripture, namely, the sacred writings that you have known from your childhood. Sacred writings. That ain't the New Testament, people. That was the Old Testament. And so um, the statement of scripture is going to be like that statement that scripture is profitable for all these things will be true not only for the Old Testament, but for the New Testament, because it's going to be equated to scripture. We'll see that. Um, but I just find it so interesting, first of all, that you can almost... Re- replace sacred writings with Old Testament. From childhood, you've been equated with the Old Testament, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. What? It's crazy. Through faith in Christ Jesus. Like somehow embedded in the Old Testament is the knowledge to make you wise for faith in Christ Jesus. Now, this to me is like encouragement as a parent. So like I got these, uh, like, okay, maybe I should like, Say it from my perspective, not my parents, my, my children. But like, so like, I'm like this little kid in Juana's, right? Memorizing scripture, memorize like a little like robot because I'm gonna get these little pens that are make me excited. And there's candy and there's games, and so I'm like really excited to be at Juana's. But like, no desire. Like, it's like they're just achievements. Like, it's just like education, like anything. And so there's no real heart behind it. So like, little Pharisee Levi running around memorizing scripture, you know. And I remember, like, I would use it, like, probably go for a fall to my friends, right? Like, just using it as a weapon to tear people down. Okay. And then, like, God saves me. Boom. Okay. All this scripture, like, ignites on fire. And it all means something suddenly. Okay. So, that, like, so training our children. This is one of my things. So, here's, so here was uh, Timothy, a little Pharisee kid himself, right? And the Holy Spirit comes in and then ignite. It's like, it's like pre-trained disciples, Great. Like, they've been disciple disciple, now their heart's behind it, and they're there. So that's my hope as a parent. Right? Okay. Okay. So now, um, Scripture, when, when the word Scripture is used in the New Testament, pretty much every single time, referring to the Old Testament, except two very notable verses. So why you got your finger in 2 Timothy, turn to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 5. Okay, so um, so Paul's giving uh, orders about how to do things in the church. Verse 17 says, Let the elder who rules well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Now, the first in question right here, verse 18. For scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And, and then you'll probably see like end quotes and then new quotes, and the laborer deserves his wages. Okay, so scripture says these two things. You should not muzzle the ox when it treads out the grain, and secondly, the laborer deserves his wages. Now, uh, do you recognize where you should not muzzle the ox when it treads out the grain? Do you recognize where that comes from? 
Yeah, Old Testament somewhere, yeah. How's, how's your Deuteronomy skills? Like, as good as mine? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think the only reason I know this verse is in Deuteronomy is because I knew it from the New Testament. <laughs> from this verse. Okay. Okay, so, that comes in Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. So, now where does the phrase, the laborer deserves his wages come from? Big hint. Not in the Old Testament. Not in the Old Testament. No, this is literally verbatim from Luke. From Luke. Luke 10.7. Yes. Footnotes, yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah, I might totally give away my game. (laughs) Uh, Try to, like, build it up, like, da-da-dum, ta-da! No, okay. Yeah, Luke 10.7. Right. Okay, so, like, Scripture says and Scripture says. So he equates the Gospel of Luke as Scripture. Man, did I totally give the other one away? So what's the other one? Okay. Oh, oh, we know this one. Second Peter. Yeah. Peter and Paul were good friends, right? So Second Peter chapter 3. He's talking about the patience of God. So 2 Peter 3, verse 15. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks of them in these manners. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, even as they do the other scriptures. So here we have... An apostle, Peter, turning and saying the words of the apostle Paul are equal to that of Scripture. So, those are two, like, those are the two explicit statements of Scripture to Scripture. But, like, built into, like, the context upon which you're going into is this, this idea that Jesus said he was going to send these apostles go into the world, the Holy Spirit was going to help them recall all the things like, that they had witnessed, and, witnessed from Christ, because you know how our memories are. Good luck trying to get dead perfect. But the Holy Spirit would be behind this, and the Holy Spirit is going to work through this. And, we, and we've looked at scriptures in the last couple classes and said, when you receive this word, you received it not as the words of men, but what it really was, the words of God. So they recognized themselves that the ministry that they were involved in was a ministry of giving people God's words, God's revelation. So, so it's not just Paul saying that about himself. It's not just you know, people saying about themselves, but now you have kind of like this confirmation going on. Okay, so then, so uh, John dies and that's your last apostle. Okay, and then like in a sense, like there, there is an end of an era. Okay, so then there are the next two eras in church history. Um, the first one uh, is called uh, the Age of the Apostolic Fathers, and then the Age of the Anti-Nicene Church. My notes are a little bit different than yours. Do you see that? Do I have the Anti-Nicene? Top page what? I didn't. To, to like, I've regretted that two weeks straight.
I think that's how it says Nicene. Is that what I say? Ooh. C E Nicene. My recording device is giving me a red light. That probably means badness. I'll stop in a minute. Okay. Okay. So you could think of this as two big generations, not like 10-year generations, but like... Um, so the apostolic fathers, these were the people who were disciples of the apostles. These are the people who got to sit down and talk to Peter and talk to John. That's what they refer to as the apostolic fathers. And they're going to be really important to us. And then the anti-Nicene, um, this is a larger chunk of time. These are the people who learn from the apostolic fathers. Okay, so disciples of disciples of disciples. Okay, leading up to the Council of Nicaea in like three, like the three hundreds A.D. So anti, like before Nicaea, is basically what it's referring to. So apostolics is a generation right after the apostles, the people who learn from the apostles, and then everyone else up to the Council of Nicaea are called the anti-Nicaean um, fathers, people, the anti-Nicaean age. Right, and there's the dates. Okay. So, um, what's important about them? So, these men, it's really interesting because you, like, there's epistles. They, they write epistles. Because epistles is not a weird thing. Like, it's not a scripture only thing. Like, epistle is a letter from one person to another person or one person to a group. So you have, like, the epistle of Clement. Okay. And, and it sounds just like scripture in the opening. You're like, uh, Clement, a brother in Christ to the church at Ephesus. Greetings in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. And then they start like expounding, as it were, uh, like talking about spiritual things. Okay, so you could almost say like, "Oh, look, another epistles that we can throw on to the back of you know our ever-growing book." But they themselves, these apostolic fathers, never considered to be what they wrote to be scripture. Um, I mentioned so they only wrote in Greek, right? And Antinician wrote in Greek, Latin, Syriac, because the church is starting to spread. All right. Um, I think we'll stop right there so I can change my battery, and it's at seven. So uh, five-minute break, and we'll get into it. All right.
Okay, is that all? All of us back in? Coffee and caffeinated? Okay, so apostolic fathers. Okay, they wrote entirely Greek. Like, kind of funny side note that, um, so I was just kind of like sporting around on this website dealing with Greek. And this guy's got his doctorate from the Southern Baptist Seminary in Kentucky, Louisville, Kentucky. And he was saying that when they read these guys, they have to translate it just like, you know, he makes them translate it for just good practice, his students. And they're doing this uh, book on Revelation and these commentaries by the Apostolic Fathers, they never make any, like, you're, as a Greek person, you're always trying to find little, like, nuggets and tidbits about Greek, understanding Greek better, and they never do. Because it's like, why would you comment on English when you speak English? So, like, they said, they, they hit this one verse, and, and um, this church father, like, made some comment, and they just went like, what? And he's like, so something about, like, um, dealing with, like, not just, like, he was referring to these the church is not as kids, but as little kids. Like, the way you treat, like, toddlers, like, with that love and affection. It wasn't even that deep of a thing, but they were so excited about it. Okay. Yeah. So, okay. So those are, those are your, uh, so the Apostolic Fathers and the Antinocene Fathers. Now, what's important, especially with the Apostolic Fathers, okay, so I say they're helpful to us in two ways. Okay. First of all, they themselves treat cite, refer to New Testament books as scripture aside, alongside Old Testament scripture. So like, there's that moment where um, Paul uses Luke side by side with scripture. And there are times that Peter says Paul. It's like, it's side, treats them side by side as scripture. Maybe even without, like in terms of what Paul did, without comment. Just like two scriptures put side by side. And that's exactly the same thing that these apostolic fathers do. They having received this training from apostles, they refer to New Testament and Old Testament scripture as scripture side by side. And they use the New Testament extensively. In fact, if you just keep your finger there and turn to the back of your packet. Which I guess this chart doesn't help us a whole lot. That image did not come out clear enough. And I, yeah, I admit that. So when I send the file, you can read that clearly. Yeah, it's not clear. Um, and so it has different people, they're writing, and, um, and like which... So this column is like different writings that we have from this age, and then the books of the Bible that they used. And so X means citation or illusion. And so you see where like... So maybe the, the, what you should be digging out of this is look at all those X's. That was just like New Testament scripture getting used in these books, treated as scripture. And then by the time, but you notice, first of all, how scattered it is. And then like the further in history you go, like the more and more it just starts like deadlocking in. They're all using it. Okay, so we'll talk about why there's like that speckledness and then like a solid wall. Okay, and also look at the, um, below that you've got this table. So this would be the Antinician and then the Post-Nicene fathers. So, because um, Origen, Eusebius, and Hippolytus, and Tertullian are post, but Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, and Clement are Antinician. But okay, so they re- they reference the Gospels, whew, like thousands and thousands of times, and the Acts. 
probably a thousand times. The Pauline epistles, thousands and thousands of times. The epistles, probably about a thousand. Revelation, a bunch. And so, yeah, they have like the total, total number of allusions, references, citations off the side in that last column. Someone says that if, like, we, like, if someone burned all of our Bibles, but forgot to, like, burn all the works of these people, we could take their works and, like, backwards get our Bible, because they used literally everything in it. So you can get, pretty much, reconstruct the whole Bible from their writings. So, doesn't sound like fun, but you could. Yeah. (laughs) So, okay. Yeah. Yeah, so they refer to the New Testament as scripture. And then the second thing they're very helpful for is they know the history. They know, they knew who wrote what. Okay, so they give us witness to which books were used by the church as scripture. Okay, um, so as I mentioned, so in terms of persecution, so there was the first persecution by Nero, physical. So I mean, maybe you say the first persecution the church faced was from the Jews. And then Rome started kind of getting involved, and that was Nero. But then, like, Nero backs off for a little bit, and then you have the span of time before that first, like, the, the great persecution by, uh, what's his name again? Dio, Dionysian, yeah, which was, like, the big systematic hunt down the Christians and kill them. Um, during that time, we say that there was another form of persecution that entered the church, which was um, doctrinal. Okay, so then you have the Di- Dionysian and then you had these Gnostic heresies just getting... So the, the second century, so the 200 AD, or 100 ADs and 200 ADs, it's just all these like, like false teachers doing these little Christian sect spinoff things. Um, and so um, you see it already in the, in the New Testament that there's pers- this uh, doctrinal persecution. And by the way, the God in the Bible refers to false teachings trying to get into the church as a form of persecution. Right? That's what he did in Second Timothy uh, chapter three. Okay, and so you're getting these people writing pseudo gospels, like naming them. Like, okay, so we obviously know that um, Paul or Matthew, Mark, and Luke have these, but you know, there's the the uh, Gospel of Thomas, and there's the Gospel of Barnabas, and there's the Gospel of name an apostle, fill in the blank, a Gospel of so and so. Okay, because it'd be like this really, you know, you're, you're getting, as it were, as Christianity is kind of growing, you might get some street cred if you have this Gospel by which to say like, oh look, I have the writings of Thomas. Okay, so there's all these pseudo Gospels are are being published, and so at some point, like it clarifying like what is scripture and what is not scripture is actually becomes this this big deal. Alright. So who are these people that are so helpful to us? So first of all, I got these little pictures and it's okay, it's Google images. <laughs> so there's nothing really authoritative about these pictures. But I looked like the most consistent image is the one I stuck with, okay? So if I saw like fifteen of those, I'm like that must be Ignatius. Okay. Ignatius, we have his writings. When was he born? 30, 30 AD. Yeah. So he's like, I mean, we're talking like this. So by the time he's 20, that's about the time Paul's rolling around, right? And there's all these great missionary journeys. So the church is, is in growth. He goes until uh, 110 AD, which is only about 10 or 15 years after John's death. So this guy was right there. So 
born during Jesus' life. He was the second or third bishop at the church of Antioch. Remember that one? So that Antioch is the church north of Jerusalem, and they have these exchanges. They're kind of in a good way. Like So Jerusalem and Antioch, and back and forth. So the, we say second, quotation or third, because there was like one bishop that only lasted for like a couple months, and then he got in there. So, and so he believed, so this is interesting, he thought, he believed he had to get to prophecy, but he always deferred to the apostles. So, whether or not he, so he ne- and he never really called his letters, he never referred to him as scripture, and his peers never referred to his scripture. So this is probably the only guy who, that we know of that said, I have the gift of prophecy, yet didn't consider himself on par with the writings of the apostles. So he acknowledges the existence of Paul's letters and the Gospel of Matthew. Irenaeus. Nope. Oh man, my thing's way off. Sorry. Do you have Papias? Oh, I did it backwards. I am so sorry. Okay, look for the one with like all the faces on it. We're like totally out of our... Just on the other side. Just on the other side. Okay. Polycarp. Dude, Polycarp's got some good stories. He was like, he was like, apparently he was like really nice, but at the same time really crotchety. And, and like, or like, like maybe not crotchety is the right word. Like, so when he, apparently when he was, uh, when he was being martyred, and he's standing in the stadium, and the Romans referred to Christians as atheists because they didn't believe in all these gods. So you don't believe in any of these gods. You think this man's a god. And so they refer to him as atheists. And he says, um, they say, just recant, um, say something like, you know, gods forgive these atheists or something like that. And so he looks at the, he looks at the, the guy and says, God, save these atheists. And he turns it back around on them and they're like, yeah, and, and he goes up in flames or something like that. So, so apparently, like, so yeah, this guy was like, had like zero fear in the face of persecution. So, and he was a disciple of the Apostle John. And he served at Smyrna for 50 years. This, yeah, I'm pretty much reading at this point. And he had quoted more scripture from him than any other church father, including 60 New Testament quotes, 34 of which were from Paul. He quotes Matthew, John, 10 Pauline epistles, 1 Peter, and First and Second John. So, pretty substantial. Okay, Papias. Guy's interesting. So I, so I think he, yeah, he and Polycarp were friends. They grew up kind of together. Um, he was actually older than Polycarp. So now Arrhenius, the first guy, um, a guy later on, Arrhenius identifies Papias as also being a disciple of John, friend of Polycarp, and he served somewhere else. He wasn't as popular as Polycarp, but. He wrote the phrase, so I'll just quote it here. So then Matthew recorded the oracles in the Hebrew tongue, and each interpreted them to the best of his ability. So Papias, so you may have heard that Matthew was written in Aramaic or Hebrew first, and then translated into the Greek. And some people get that from the statement from Papias that says like, oh, he had these oracles that he recorded in the Hebrew tongue. So that's that's where the idea that uh, Matthew wrote, was writing to the Jews, and then he, so he wrote it in Hebrew, and and it ended up being helpful, so he translates it, and so people were translating it over to uh, Greek when they needed it. Um, 
a lot to okay, not a lot to say, but a little bit to say. I don't think, so it doesn't say his gospel. They could have used the word gospel. Gospel was a word they could have used, like written the gospel of. They just say his oracles, like he wrote the oracles. So probably like a better way to take the statement than saying like he wrote the gospel of Matthew in Hebrew first is to say that he probably wrote some things in scripture, scripture, like wrote things in Aramaic and Hebrew. But later he wrote the Gospel of Matthew and he wrote it in Greek. The reason why I think that's probably a better statement is it gives some, you know, he said the oracles in the Hebrew tongue, not the Gospel. He also, when he uses the New Testament, when he quotes the Old Testament, he uses the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation. And it would be kind of weird for him to be using the Greek translation when writing to Hebrew. Do you expect him to use the other one, the Masoretic text that we talked about? We'll talk about these again next week. Um, but he uses the Greek translations. Um, and then also, that's the, one of the first big ones. And then the other one is that those word similarities between him and Mark. They have like these Greek ordering things that are just like kind of locked in, which makes me think like, okay, that he, yeah. I always have this, okay, I'm going like a little fighter. How do they get these things like dead on? Like, well, like, I don't know. They both listen to the same guy talk. Jesus, right? Could it be they actually got the words down, right? Okay. So they got these, these word orders just right, which makes it sound like he knew his Greek as well. Matthew would have been fluent in Greek, perfectly fluent in Greek, right? Because he was a Hebrew tax collector. So he worked with the Romans. He worked with trade. This guy was probably really well-educated. There's no reason to think that he was stuck using the Aramaic tongue. So... So if you ever hear that, that Matthew was written in Hebrew, that's where they're getting it from. And I think probably just overstating this, like over reading too much into that statement. But Justin Martyr, okay. also a really neat person. Okay, because he started off as a pagan philosopher. So this guy is not a Jew. This guy has no associations with Christianity or Judaism. And then he gets saved. And then he becomes like, so he's uh, an apologist. He spends pretty much the bulk of his ministry writing to Roman emperors, explaining to them this is what Christianity is about. Because the emperors start getting like these really sordid descriptions of Christianity um, that they have these feasts where they drink blood. Yeah. And they, they have like these... Um, um, yeah, like, you know... Um, aberrant sexual practices just from the way they refer to it as brothers and sisters and they ate one body and all this. So they, they like, so, and then to be fair, and there's also like these sects of Christianity at this point breaking off and doing something like doing like weird, really weird things. So Rome doesn't know the difference between what's a Christian, what's a Jew and what's just a weird Christian, right? Or a heretic Christian. So they don't have any way to distinguish those. So Justin Martyr's like writing letters saying, this is what scripture said. This is what the church is doing. Here's, and so he just like, just try to, uh, clear things out. And then he'd also get in these like public debates. Like just think like classic, you're at a college and two people are going head to head in a college, like talking about these issues. And he's like defending the one true God and they're trying to defend the polytheism. And they're having these debates. So that was just a martyr. Oh, by his last, his name was not martyr. That's just what happened to him. <laughs> That's just what happened to him. So it's his title. Justin Martyr is his title. Yeah. So, um, 
So, quote, Justin Martyr considered all the Gospels as Scripture, plus most of Paul's epistles, as well as Peter and Revelation. Now, saying most, I'll get to that in a second, which may just mean he didn't have all of Paul's epistles at that point. It's noteworthy that Justin had occasion to refer to Mark, Luke, John, and Revelation in ways that was not cited by Polycarp and not referred to in Philippians or Timothy, which would tend to confirm the thesis that both men accepted more books than those from which... Oh, they confirmed the thesis that both men accepted more books than those from which they quoted. So, like, they, the whole canon of scripture... You just get the sense that they believe that there's this canon, not just, like, this book... Like, they're self-picking books for themselves. Now, if you get a chance... Um, I forget. But, like, everybody who refers to him as Justin Martyr. I It'd be really annoying if his name, last name was actually Martyr, and I just like, picked up a wise tale, or like some like folklore thing, right? Yeah, and he just like changed, yeah, the church changed it. He, um, yeah, he's one of the ones that, so some of these like pappies, we don't have a whole lot of his writings, but the way we do is like really interesting. We have a lot of polycarp. Justin Martyr is one of those ones that, it's like, it's good reading when you get into it. Um, Kind of like the, Mac, uh, the same thing I say with Maccabee is like good reading, kind of interesting. Same thing with Justin Martyr. It's really interesting to hear him defending things like at an early date. Okay, so now, where are we at? Irenaeus. So now we're starting to get a little bit later. He's born 120, dies in 200 AD. So, so this is your first Antinocene. So he's a disciple of Polycarp missionary to France. He, he gives us a lot of insight into these people. So he gives a lot of insight into who knew who. So, quote, the first early father who, quoted, who himself quoted almost every book in the New Testament was Arrhenius. He quoted or considered as authentic 23 of the 27 books, omitting only Philemon, James, 2 Peter, and 3 John. We'll get into why in a little bit. Okay. So, historical cohesion. So why this ends up being really helpful to us. Okay. So if you're going to take down the New Testament, so one of the ways that they do this, this is really, really popular right now in uh, our culture. You go on Huffington Post or um, major web websites, and they're like, oh, this person wrote this book, and oh, this person's really popular. Okay, And they just spend a lot of time um, saying that the, the, the books as we received them were compiled in the 280. Okay, 200. So, like, you know, it's all oral tradition. Maybe they start writing things down in the 100s. By the time we get to the 200s, um, there, was this, there probably was this real dude named Jesus. It was a guy, social revolutionary. They loved him. They didn't think he was God. He didn't do miracles. A little bit later, you get a couple, you know, generations down. They're thinking of Jesus with awe, and they start associating miracles and all these things to him. And so they write that in later. Um. So, and, and when they do that, they're only like they, they, they just only look at the gospel, like the Bible itself, and they don't really consider this next generation of people. Okay, because if you're gonna if you're going to say like all this stuff was made up, then you've got to account for the fact that these people were using scripture in its final form, right? They're using it already. This is not stuff. It's not like so. So not only did the they have to like so when you go back and fix things, fix things is called redacting. So not only do they have to redact all scripture, but every letter these people wrote that we have. They have to redact, they had to find every letter these people wrote back and forth and then change their statements as well as the Bible statements. Just trying to get like redact all the Bible statements alone would be equivalent to trying to find all the LA Times today. 
and finding them and changing some stuff. So, I mean, that alone is hard enough, much less the emails that people are writing each other about the LA Times. So it would be a lot of work. So, historical cohesion. The Bible makes... The Bible makes it clear that the, what happened in Palestine and Judea and Galilee happened alongside history. So the book, the book of Acts is so helpful. Hey, hey, Theophilus, here's all the stuff that happened. I talked to all these eyewitnesses. Now, if Theophilus has any concerns about this being true, or any of the people um, receiving like that Theophilus shared it with, they can just go back and like say, okay, so Felix, huh? Funny, Felix wasn't in Jerusalem at this time. Like, there's all this history that like people were around for, and they remember, and they participated in. They they knew what happened. It's like, and so, and then in First Corinthians 15, Paul says, like, hey, there. Oh, I should. I'm gonna butcher it if I just try to shoot this off the cuff. But in First Corinthians 15, Paul says, I would remind you. Brothers of the gospel, I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word, I preached to you, unless you have believed in vain. For, verse 3, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared, and then he starts like, okay, so this is the part. He starts talking about history. They appeared to Cephas, as Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Okay, so most of whom are still alive, though some, some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as the one untimely born, he appeared to me. Okay, so in other words, like, go ahead, fact check this. Not afraid to have this fact checked. You can look, you can go ask these people what happened, and you'll get the story. So, um, Benjamin Warfield, so I have this long quote here on the bottom of the page, Benjamin Warfield. So, a lot of what we call textual and historical criticism. So, looking at the Bible and saying, hmm, uh, no, there's some good parts to it, there's some bad parts to it. Saying, okay, like, how is the Bible formed? So, back in, like, the, the Enlightenment, 1800s, you got all the science, all this archaeology going on, and they start, like, saying, okay, well, how did the Bible really get formed? What really happened? And they started like kind of deconstructing the Bible. And then you had this guy, Benjamin Warfield, who spent like his, his professional life doing the opposite, like trying to defend like why he saw the scriptures as being coherent. And so here, here's one of his quotes. Quote. The reason I'm giving you a quote, he's, he's not fun to read. He's a really, really hard to read person. But, quote, for instance, he's giving a lecture right now. The epistle of Polycarp witnesses to the prior existence of Matthew, Luke, Acts, 11 epistles of Paul, 1 Peter, 1 John. And as Polycarp was a pupil of John, his testimony is very strong. But Irenaeus was Polycarp's pupil, and Irenaeus explicitly cites this letter and declares it to be Polycarp's genuine production. And no one from this time has, uh, time to ours, has found cause to dispute the statement until it has become necessary to be rid of the testimony of the letter to our canon. But if Polycarp's letter be genuine, it sets its own date and witness in return, uh, in turn to the letter of Ignatius, which then, which themselves bear internal testimony to their own early date. And these letters of Ignatius testify not only to the prior existence of Matthew, John, Romans, 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, 1 Thessalonians, and 1 John, but also to the prior existence of an authoritative, divine, divinely inspired New Testament. This is but a specimen 
of the linked character of our testimony. It not only is fairly abundant, but it's also connected by evidently undersigned, indeed, but yet detached articulations that set aside any one important piece of it, usually necessitates such a wholesale attack on literature of the second century as to amount to reductio ad absurdum. We may then boldly formulate as our own conclusion that external evidence imperiously forbids the dethronement of any New Testament book from our place in the canon. So you can see why I say like he's not a fun read? <laughs> yeah. This dude is like, Ooh. And he doesn't subdivide his chapters. That's what's hardest to me. Like, I can never refine. I'm like, oh, that's such a great quote. And like, oh, yeah, it's in that chapter. I can never refine things again. Like, there's one. Because this, this came out of a lecture that he gave. And it was, just, it was like only 10 pages. It was easy to find again. So what he's getting at is like, it's basically what I said. You've got to like reconstruct the whole history of the Gospels and the whole history of all the 280s. Like 100, 280s. You've got to like have an explanation for everything to the point that if you say that, then you could believe nothing. Like the amount of like intellectual leaps you're going to have to be to say that these people are all making things up. You cannot believe anything you read. Anything. And they, and they don't do it to their own writings. You shouldn't do it to these older writings as, as well. And, and, he, and he points, Benjamin Warfield is really fond of pointing out the fact that they only do this when scripture's involved. But when scripture's not involved, they're all fine with it. And they, so they, they treat, they have these rules of engagement that they treat some literature with, but when they turn to scripture, like, it's just like gloves off and they go biting each other's ears, right? So, yeah. So, helpful. Um, so one more thing. When I was reading this, you reminded me of something. Yeah, I'll probably remember it. As my mom says, it must not have been a good point. If you can't remember. It felt like a good point when I was thinking of it. All right. It'll come to me. Okay. Okay, cannons. So look at the top cannons. Okay. So as the church began to spread, not every church had every letter of the gospel. You see that in the New Testament. Paul says, take this letter, share it. Take this letter, share it. Um, Colossians and Ephesians have very similar themes. Probably because they're like, he's in jail and he's writing one direction, he's writing another letter, another direction, and they kind of cross paths again, right? Um, so, when I, when I notice in the back, you kind of have this speckled reception, like, like not everything's being used, and then some are not considering all scripture to be scripture. What you're getting at is like, the stuff starts just like flying out from all directions. Like you get, you get these scriptures, and like they're following circuits of churches. And sometimes it takes time to get to people. And so books that were like slow to get moved around, like 3 John was slow. Mainly, not that it was important, but it's like a page long. And, it, and it's dealing to like a specific house church in a specific instance. And so it was probably, so like, you know, if you had the choice of like copying the book letter of Romans or doing the third John, it seemed like people were sending Romans out or something like that. And they get to third John eventually. So it spreads slower. Okay. And by and large, there was like no doubt to the minds of the people in the church, like what was scripture until answer the heretics. So the first formal compilation, like, Statement of candidacy. These are scripture, these are not. Came from a heretic named Marcion, 
who was a full-fledged Gnostic. Here we go. They're here. There's a picture of him. That's the best picture I could find. They also did not think very highly of him. Okay, so he believed, this sounds really interesting, there are two gods. One of the Old Testament, one of the New Testament, and the God of the New Testament, through Christ, defeated the God of the Old Testament. He rejects Old Testament scripture. He removed books and passages of the Bible that he considered to be in support of the Old Testament. So Marcion cut out Matthew, Mark, Acts, the pastoral epistles, Hebrews, and he heavily edited Luke. Snip, 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 snip. Yeah. Okay. So now he's like custom tailoring a Bible to his own liking. And then saying, this is the Bible. Okay. And then apparently what Marcion started doing, like other cult leaders started to do the same thing. Is like start a cult, start cutting things out. Okay. So then the church gets defensive, rightfully so. Okay. The church is going to, like, the church has to start defining what is scripture. What is not? And then also, like, persecution. So you got people trying to rob your Bibles, people trying to, like, plunt, like rewrite your Bible. So you're getting it left and right. And so um, Dan Brown's book, The Da Vinci Code, um, likes to make the, make the statement about the Council of Nicaea, like the Bible was not formed to the Council of Nicaea. Not true. Like, we've already seen, like, they knew the Bible was early 100s. And then... Um, Pause. They have also found, so our dating techniques have been getting better. They've actually found, like, fragments of the Gospel of Mark dating to, like, 90 AD. I think it's the one they said. It was, like, 90 AD. So, and they used the ink instead of the parchment to, like, get it there. Okay, that was it. I mean, it was not <laughs> flashy as I thought it was. Okay. So it was like, that. that's say, like, and we've got old copies now, so like that also helps us. Okay, so Marcion, here you snip, snip. So Council Nicaea. So one of the things they do is they say, okay, this is our first chance. Like, okay, so um, the Romans stop persecuting the Christians, and one of the first things to do is just have a little power and say, okay, so what do we say? Scripture. Like, what do we receive as scripture? And they lay out, like, okay, these are the books that we are absolutely fine with. There's no. There's no issue with. Okay, now, remember I said last week that one of the differences between, at this point, this was, I don't think, true early on, one of the differences between like, the Protestant church and the Catholic church when defining canon is the Catholic church believes they can say, if this is canon, it's canon. They can just they can declare it. They're God's representatives on earth. So what they say on earth is bound on earth and bound in heaven. Okay, whereas the Protestant position is like, we receive scripture. God confirmed scripture. So the reason why there's 66 books in the Bible is because God himself gave us 66 books. And so, and that's where that, the statement of the Apocrypha came in, right? The Apocrypha was it, it was added in late by the church. Now, the Catholic Church said they had a precedent because the Council of Nicaea said, this is scripture, this is not. It's really interesting that the Council of Nicaea did not actually feel, they did not determine what was scripture. As so much as affirm it was already acknowledged by the church as scripture. And the Council of Nicaea identified five books as disputed. James, 2 Peter, 2 and 3 John, and Jude. Okay. And the only reason that why they said they're disputed, they're just like, the jury's out. The reason why is because some, the way that the, the books had gotten to, like, to different parts of the church at this point, 
Like someone shows up the book and you're like, is it really scripture? I don't know. Right? Because you start getting like the Gospel of Barnabas. You're like, Gospel of Thomas. Epistle of so-and-so. Like you get all these forgeries. And another one shows up. It's like, no, 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 this came from the Church of Smyrna. You're like, is it? Okay, so when, kind of like, as it were, when the Roman persecution fell, churches could start talking again freely. And one of the things that happened after Council of Nicaea, they could start back, like, fact-checking these books. Say, did this really come from Smyrna? Did it really get back-checked by? And so they could reconstruct. So churches could finally come together and say, yes, this is how I received it. It came from this person. Polycarp confirmed it. And, they, and you get letters like this all the time where, like, people are, like, saying, this is the track record that we have. Okay. So... So they left five disputed, and then they worked it out later. And then they got worked out, and it wasn't a problem from that point on. Okay, so turn the page, criterion and canonicity. So we have the different criteria, but there's probably only two that was got addressed again and again and again about whether or not a um, book was canonical. Okay. So... Apostolic origin. Okay. Apostolic origin. So it did not mean that Apostle had to write the book, per se, but it reflected the direct apostolic pe- uh, teaching. Okay. So the Western Church, Eastern Church, which means like Western Church would be like things heading into Greek, and Western Church things heading north, and like Const- Constantinople, Constantinople would be Eastern, and Rome was Western. There's a question on, there were kind of like these two, like, okay, does it have to be written by an Apostle? Or, like, have the message of Apostle. Because, like, this comes down to, like, Luke. Luke on Apostle? Yes, no. Well, no. So, is it Scripture? Yes, no. It's like, well, he was running around with Paul a whole lot. And so, and then, and like, and then you can back check it and say, like, these people are saying Luke was with Paul. They accepted it as Scripture. Okay. So, that was the Gospel of Luke. It was vouched for by Paul. The Gospel of Mark was vouched for by Peter. Okay. And that was affirmed to us by the church in Antioch. So who's Antioch? That was um, Polycarp. Okay. So there were some questions, but they're never challenged. The Gospels pretty much were not challenged very heavily. But how about the book of Hebrews? Who's the author? Da, da, da. Yeah, so this is, like, this is like the question that, yeah. But, so like, who, yeah. So you say, has to have apostolic origin. Who wrote Hebrews? I don't know. Okay. So, it made it slow to be accepted by the entire Western church. Like, big swaths of the churches accepted it, no problem. But there's some people, because of the anonymity, figured they'd better withhold judgment. Now, um, who wrote it? I think it got accepted because people said, they felt pretty sure Paul wrote it. But like, how many people, like, like if you go around and say, like, okay, who wrote Hebrews? Pick a name in the New Testament. Pick a name. Got none? Barnabas? Barnabas wrote it. Like, someone's made an argument for Barnabas writing it. Someone made an argument for Silas writing it. Someone, like, someone made an argument for someone writing it. Now, the reason why people wonder if Paul wrote it is because um, it is written in a completely different style. Not different, like, it's Greek. It's written in, like, higher Greek. Not, like, kind of, like, common street vernacular, yo-yo, what's going on. Like, it's, it's written with, like, nice prose and different, gra- and, and, like, higher grammar. And they say, well, Paul would be, would not write in two different styles. 
I write in many different styles. Like if I'm like writing a sermon, it's different than when I'm talking to people. So like, so I think that's kind of a suspicious argument. I always find that one suspicious. And Paul was well, really well educated. I think he knew his Greek. Okay. So people usually like to make some statement about Hebrews. Couldn't have been written by him. So, um, but the early acceptance of Hebrews by the early church who could validate his apostolic authority eventually won over the entire Western church. There's people who could vouch like, this is scripture, these people told us the scripture, we have this background, and I don't think, yeah, I don't know. Hebrews is a great book. It kind of speaks, speaks in a way. I've read, I always wonder if like, this is just, like, I've been raised in the church, but I've read some of these like, good books written by apostolic people, and it just doesn't have like, the punch of scripture. Like, I just, like, it just doesn't, like, it's not, it doesn't have the same feel. It could just be my subjective whatever. But I think the church was willing to accept it because it changed hearts, changed minds, changed, and it had the message of the apostles in it. Second Peter had the same exact challenge. Now, Peter, not known for being articulate, apparently. And first Peter, he speaks very Jewishly with his Greek. He uses like this one structure over and over again that's like, you're such a Jew. Like you, you, you write semitically, which is not in a, like, in a good way. Like he just uses like this. And then Second Peter is like it's all cleaned up and much better. And you're like, okay, how could this be the same person writing it? Okay, got two options. Peter did spend some time in Rome. That can improve your writing, right? Actually interacting with people who, with, of whom it's their first language. Or you've got this thing called a scribe, right? Who could also like, can I say this? Yeah, yeah, you can say that. You know, you know. So, so, um, so there was concern because it had a different writing style that it may not have been from Peter, but then it was vouched for by the early churches. And Jude, poor Jude, was only suspect because of so similar to Second Peter. It was guilty by association. <laughs> so, like, no one ever had to prove Jude was legit. They said, well, if Second Peter is not legit, then Jude, who sounds a lot like Second Peter, is not legit. You're like, really? Okay, so Peter's legit. Jude's legit. Like, okay, in the shadow of Second Peter, Jude. All right. And then Revelation, okay, now this is interesting. It actually was accepted, and then people started having a problem with it, and it got re- kind of accepted again. And the reason why is because, um, depending on your eschatology, this is going to be fun. There have been, okay, so I said, there's little question about its authenticity until later, when there were disputes about whether or not there was a literal millennial reign. Right. So, it's nice to know there's nothing <laughs> new here. Okay. Um, and then there's this group called the Montanists that were really, so they had their view of new and ongoing prophecy, and they used scripture from Revelation to um, prove it. So they'd like march into your town, carrying this book of Revelation, using the book of Revelation to prove some weird point, and you're like, I don't like the book of Revelation. Because your first exposure to it was these people coming in and trying to prove this really off-the-wall point. Okay, so... And then later, other churches said, no, 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 no. Those people just took it, ran with it weird. We've had this for X amount of time, and we, we've been fine with it. And they're all okay. So, what they became, so the formal discussion about whether or not it was going to be universally accepted was not an issue of authenticity so much as interpretation. These people were interpreting it weird. That's kind of what it boiled down to. Now, this one's fun. The didache. The didache, which means teaching in Greek, didache. Okay, now, this is the flip side, okay? So the didache would have been a 
great option of being accepted into the church as scripture. Because what it was, if you, so as, for the longest time we did not have a copy of the Dake. It got kind of lost to history and then someone found a copy of it. And what it is, it's like church instructions. When you get together, here's how you to behave. If a prophet shows up at your house for three days and keeps asking for food and money, okay, yeah, you can, you can just send them on their merry way. Okay, so they have like instructions like this, just kind of like, kind of, um, I guess like maybe like um, polity, like it's just how you're to run the church. And so they refer to it as a teaching. And the interesting thing about it is that it, it dates probably in like the 70 80s. Like it's early. Okay. But no one ever attached to it apostolic authority. Like this was just like good advice from one church to another. And it never came to us in history as having any apostolic authority. So even though it was a good book, people use it. Like these are great rules to run your church by. No one actually said it was scripture and it was never actually accepted as scripture. So this is kind of the, the reverse side of it. Great book. Would have been a perfect candidate, but because it did not have any of the, the apostolic authority or no one could vouch for it, it just was not received as scripture. Okay. And then, so those were the ones that there's question of authority. They eventually got worked out when the churches could start talking. Recognition by the church. Okay, so I'll skip a little bit here. So when God speaks, his sheep hear his voice. So we've talked about this. Um, but you see the quote once, the question of authority? Okay, so subparagraph here. Once the question of authority or genuineness was settled, there was no problem about the canonicity. It was clear that a book was written by a prophet of God It told the truth about God and man and so on. Then it was recognized to be the word of God. Okay, so then you have this, these problems of these like not very well circulated texts, so especially the small ones, like Second Peter, first, Second and Third John were the least circulated of all the texts. Um, and so, if they're slow to get accepted by the churches, it was, by the time fake ones are coming around, you start being suspicious. But I think, again, you could say, um, when the churches could talk, everything just kind of, when the churches could talk, just everything settled back down. Like, all these questions just kind of boiled away, and we were back to, like, this canon. All right, now the content of the book. Now, how did they break down all these fakers. Okay. So I refer to two scriptures here that we refer to several times, but okay. When a gospel comes to you, saying something completely other than what we said, is to be rejected. Okay. So by ninth okay, by the ninth century, so I'm reading at the last line of the first paragraph. By the ninth century, there were two hundred and eighty pseudo gospels known. Okay. Not all of them like a lot of them, the only reason to know they exist is because we have this little fragment. Okay? And there's a reason why we only have a little fragment. The church didn't care. <laughs> like, it just didn't, like it didn't get copied a gajillion times like the way that scriptures were. Um, but some notable examples. So Dan Brown, Gospel of Thomas. I think he refers to that. Okay. I think a lot of people know about the Gospel of Thomas. So Thomas like, Gospel of an Apostle named Thomas. Okay. And then they start reading and going like, the what? Okay. Um, so, so Gospel of Thomas, like one of the things that we had people were like really scratching their head about, it was like basically a bunch of stuff about Jesus' childhood. And he'd take like these little, um, take mud, and he'd make them to little pigeons and like breed life into them, and little pigeons would take off. Something like that. And you're like, 
funny. I didn't think Jesus did miracles until he got the Holy Spirit after he was baptized and went to the wilderness and was tempted. And then he did his first miracle at Canaan. And they have all these like little miracles going on in Jesus' childhood. So you're sitting there like, ah, oh, this is interesting. And then there's this one where like a child bumps, like crashes in Jesus, like a little rude kid, and dies. Like, <laughs> like, don't you hit my son, right? So like, and then like at that point you're like, okay, yeah, no. Okay. So, so the church had these stories going like, you know, this doesn't really seem like legit stories about Jesus that we've ever heard about. So that was, so not super common, but you had Gnostic teaching. It was really popular to the Gnostics, but the church is not interested at all with these at all. Okay, so then the Gospel of Peter, now that sounds good, right? Gospel of Peter, no doubt. Okay, but it presents various contradictory statements about Christ's crucifixion to that which is already told. For example, Christ calling out, my power, my power, thou hast forsaken me. Kind of high power stuff, right? My power, my power, thou hast forsaken me. Which doesn't even match the Old Testament reference, right? It's like, yeah. And then Jesus felt no pain when crucified. It's totally Gnostic because they don't, like the body and soul were being separated. So Jesus' body is being all tortured and his soul feels nothing, right? Um, Oh, yeah, interesting side note there. Okay. Um, and there's also something in the Gospel of Peter, or Thomas, oh, I should be careful. Um, one of them has a very derogatory view of women. That they're like, like if you're going to get, if women are going to get into heaven, it's because they turn into men, or something like that. It's like, just totally like, like uh, which is, which is, which is like, okay, which is so interesting, because like, why, um, yeah, like, there's, yeah, never mind. There's, there's some liberals who are like so into these things. Like, how could you be into this? Like, liberals, why could you be into this? It's like total garbage. That demeans women. Okay. Um, so, interesting side note, I say here. So, interesting side note, the Roman Catholic position that Jesus' brothers and sisters were from Joseph's first marriage can only be traced to the Gospel of Peter, which was not accepted as a gospel. So, it was like, so, um, you know that Christmas song? When uh, Joseph was an old man, an old man was he. He married Virgin Mary by the Sea of Galilee. No? Okay. So yeah, it's, just, it's a Christmas song, which is basically like this old seven-year-old dude marrying this like 13-year-old girl. So Joseph is old and impotent, and then like Mary miraculously conceives, and then Joseph dies off without them having any kids. So she maintained uh, Mary's uh, um, miraculous, or the perpetual virginity or something. What's it? Something like that. So, that, that. so part of it is like, oh, Joseph is old. can only be found traced to this pseudo-gospel. The Proto-Evangelium of James. James! James! Great name, right? Okay. Rejected because of deviant report of the birth of Christ, particularly regarding Mary. Um, so it includes ideas of her perpetual virginity, her own miraculous birth, reports of miracles accompanied the birth of Christ, including like this moment where Christ actually gets born-born, like that moment where, like he actually like comes up. Like, everything freezes, and it's just Mary and Jesus. Just, like, have this, like, silent moment, and then, like, time, like, everybody started moving again or something like that. So, like, just kind of these weird stories, and to which point the church is like, you know. So, um, people like to make big of the fact that there's, like, all these different Gospels, and, like, they just chose the ones they wanted. It's like, like, these other ones, they got no traction with the church. They had contradictory statements. So, I think people over... Play it. If you actually like read them and see what's going on, you're like, there is no way these things were ever considered. And there's no, and there's no, like, just by content, you're like, there's no way this got into the church. And then you can look at like all the writings, and guess what? They don't show up in the church. So um, it's a popular thing nowadays to talk about these books. Um, you should read them for yourselves.
So, there was, uh, just recently, I'll leave it four minutes, we can do this, um, someone found a new fragment of a gospel that made some reference to Jesus being married to Mary Magdalene. And he got all this press. Like, this, like the, you know, prove that Jesus married, had kids, yada, yada. Okay. Um, and and there's, there's, this late, there's this scholar in England who, like, really was pushing it. And she was taking it to conferences and saying, like, I got it. It's written in old Coptic. It's like, it's got all the markings of a legit um, gospel. And she, and she even said, this is fun, that she, st- she staked her very academic reputation upon it. Okay. So uh, there was this big article in the Atlantic the, uh, the other day, a couple of months ago, that basically proved, without a shadow of a doubt, it was a forgery. And uh, the, the forger had like, attended a grad school and learned Coptic, and then got kicked out by his visors, and he didn't finish his degree, and then he was like some scam artist for a bunch of years, and then he did some other sordid things he don't want to know about. And then, like, and so, and he was always trying to scam people on money. And so he, he made, like, found some old papyrus and he, like, wrote on it and then gave it. And so when, so when they started, like, fact checking, like, where did this thing come from? Like, everybody, when they first saw it, it was like, everybody goes, no way, no way, no way. And so what they do is they start, they take this piece of thing, start carbon dating, start doing the, like, style, like, they start referring to, like, all the things that make this ancient. And some reporter said, where did it come from? And so he starts backtracking, like, where did you get this from? Where did you get this from? Where did you get this from? And, like, it, like, completely unravels. Like, this guy who went to grad school, knew Coptic, so that was, used to, like, scam people all the time, had sold it to this person, had sold it to the, to the scholar. And it, like, and then, like, and then when they, 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 they just, they had him so clearly. And so one of, because every, every artifact is supposed to have, like, a receipt. Like, a, a, you keep a receipt of everyone. Like, your books at the library, like, who had it before you, they have, like, everything supposed to, it's not authentic unless you can prove that. And so, like, one of the takeaways is everybody thinks that the best way to produce a forgery is to fake, the hardest thing in producing a forgery is to fake its antiquity. And a point of fact, with the, with the, yeah, it's actually, that's the easier of the two things to do. The hardest thing to do is to fake its recent history. Recent history is so much harder to fake because you can backtrack it. Okay. Rewind 2,000 years ago, right? Like, the same thing applies to what we had then. Like, there's all these Gospels, there's, like, these books coming out. The hardest thing it would have been for these people to do is to fabricate recent history, right? To change everything that happened in Galilee when everything's laid out so clearly, and yet it survived that test, right? The people who had the most to gain or lose, like, get persecuted over this, they, they could fact-check this and be confirmed by it. And so, and they did, so... Anyways, I just thought that was interesting. Funny enough, well, I guess the Atlantic's pretty popular. Didn't get as much press as the original finding. This is usually true of most discoveries. Big discovery, whoa! Oh, it was proof false, but I guess like fifth page or something. Any questions? Yeah, because he's not around in the Gospels. Yeah. It's in the meaning of 70. Yeah. A lot of ways to die back then. A lot of ways to die now, right?
Eli Eli. Yeah, Lama Sabachthani. Yeah, Eli, yeah, Eli, Eli, Lama Eli, uh, so El is a name for, it's a shorthand, so Elohim is the word for God, so the root of El, Eli is possessive, my God, my God. See, that's a problem. Yeah. And quoted in Psalm 22, so you can back. Um, will there ever be? They talk about in Revelation two prophets showing up, but yeah. And then uh, Alan, we, uh, he preached, and then he mentioned the twelve. Like, and so in Revelation, you have like the twelve apostles, and there's twelve pillars. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. So no, no apostle. Yeah, and okay, have there people who claim to be apostles? Have you been to Old Town? (laughs) Yeah, so, like, yeah. So. Right. Do they come, yeah, do they come with the power of God? Do they speak the words of God? Can they, does it agree with what the scripture has said? So, yeah, so this is actually, yeah. I guess we can get into this a little bit because you asked. So, in Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. Um, they're starting to have problems with, okay, if you want to be someone popular in the church, start prophesying or speaking in tongues. And Paul, and so like, how do you know when someone's a faker versus a legit? And it can be like faker because you just want attention, right? And that's, and so, so Paul starts laying out this argument, how are you going to know when a prophet is actually speaking prophecy? And one of the things he, that God, Paul says Paul, that God does, is that he gives, he doesn't just let a prophet stand alone and talk by himself, he gives confirmation, to his people. So there's like prophets and the people who can discern the spirit of prophets. So he, he does it in the context, not in the context of community. God will, com- this, is, this has been always been my comfort. God will confirm his word. Will, like if, you, you're his, if you're his child and you're in his church, if like someone comes to you speaking and it's truly, is it truly scripture? God will confirm his word to you. And he'll do it in the context of the church and the community because that's how he's doing it in Corinthians. So when the guy showed up a couple days ago, a couple weeks, months ago, saying that there is a um, army on the I-5 ready to take out Humboldt County, right? Like there's like there's nothing backing this up here, dude. Like this is you talking by yourself, and there's a yeah. So yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. So next week we're gonna deal with. Translating, like how we translate the text in English, and then how manuscripts got to us, holding them. So, so it's going to be fun. I like it. Okay.